Hello, friends, and welcome to another episode of Fully Automated, an Occupy IR Theory podcast. Today, we are joined by Colin Coulter of the National University of Ireland, Maynooth. Colin is a lecturer in sociology, and he has an article out recently in the journal Critical Sociology, which he has co-authored with Francisco Arqueros Fernandez and Angela Nagel. The piece is entitled Austerity's Model Pupil, the Ideological Uses of Ireland During the Eurozone Crisis. Now, as some listeners may know, I have myself been working on something of a book project about the role of culture in Irish austerity. And I have to say, I've always found Colin to be a really great guide on this subject. He just has this knack for uh, blending together analysis of the material dynamics of the crisis with a critique of the role of culture as a force sustaining the legitimacy of austerity in Ireland, uh, which is seen as kind of like the, the necessary solution to all of Ireland's problems. This cultural project is one that is carried out by government institutions, to be sure, but also by a number of other cultural agencies that exist within Irish society, as they all seek to orient Irish people better to understand their responsibility in causing the crisis in the first place. But interestingly, Colin also has an analysis of how certain strains within the Irish academic left have perhaps enabled this process, namely by overlooking questions to do with the production of capitalist culture. Colin explains uh, the role of capitalist culture in Ireland in this really, really accessible manner. So it's a great honor and privilege to have him on the show. I think you're going to really enjoy the interview. I'll go ahead and put a copy of Colin's article on the Occupy IR Theory blog, and you'll be able to find that as ever at www.occupyirtheory.info. And uh, remember, if you like what you hear in this show, please feel very welcome, feel encouraged even, (laughs) to leave us a positive review on iTunes. And of course, if you want to reach out to us on Twitter, you're welcome to do that too, at Occupy IR Theory. So there you have it. Now, uh, without any further ado, let me present to you Colin Coulter. Colin, I'm thrilled to welcome you to the show today. Uh, You've joined us to talk about a piece of yours that's just been published in the journal Critical Sociology entitled Austerity's Model Pupil, the Ideological Uses of Ireland During the Eurozone Crisis. And uh, importantly, it seems to me that this is kind of an update piece um, following up on arguments that you uh, had already begun to outline in a book volume you edited with uh, Angela Nagel a couple of years ago entitled Ireland Under Austerity. So in this piece, you've, uh, or you're joined rather, uh, not only by Angela, but also another contributor to that volume, uh, Francisco Arqueros Fernandez. So let's start uh, with what might be, um, for some, the obvious question. Why are we still talking about Irish austerity? I mean, the, the Celtic tiger is back, right? The country's growth rates are off the charts. Employment is booming. There are cranes once again dotting the Dublin skyline. Isn't this proof uh, that Ireland is somehow an austerity success story? Um, no, uh, it, it, it isn't. Um, I, I, I suppose the the, the the first thing is, uh, you know, the obvious kind of uh, first is tragedy, then is farce kind of uh, argument that, you know, if you know the Celtic Tiger ended extraordinarily badly, so the idea that having it back is is a triumph is, of course, uh, deeply deeply problematic. Um, I mean, the Celtic Tiger had many problems, uh, but one of them, of course, was that many people were left behind. And this particular um, retread uh, of the Celtic Tiger, uh, sometimes been referred to now as the Celtic Phoenix, um, <laughs> really does feel like um, uh, tragedy being played out once more um, as farce. It's almost as if we haven't learned any of the lessons um, of the last 20, 25 years. Mm-hmm. Um, it seems like we're making the same mistakes. It seems like, or at least they're being made on our behalf. And even some of the sure. original cast are beginning to uh, reassemble. Um, you know, we're talking about a, a period of boom. If we accept that it's a boom, and there's there's, there's lots of qualifications to that, which we can yeah. get into later. But if we accept that it is a period of boom, it's a boom that has coincided with the highest level of homelessness in the history of the state. 
Um, it's coincided with uh, record levels of uh, people on trolleys waiting um, basic health care in the public health yeah. system. Um, it's coincided with records level. I mean, literally, uh, rent levels now in um, Dublin and elsewhere are higher than at the Celtic Tiger Peak. Right. So it's, I mean, I think particularly for younger people, yeah. uh, people, you know, who don't remember or barely remember the Celtic Tiger era, this is a time of continued austerity because um, unemployment remains high uh, for many younger people. There are jobs, but many of those jobs are not particularly good jobs. Um, uh, if you can get your hands on a job, um, very substantial amounts of your income are going out on rent if you can find a house. Um, literally in Dublin now, um, porta cabins out the back garden of people's houses are now being rented out for astron- astronomical sums. So it does seem to be a period of, 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 of growth without development as such, um, and the benefits once more being heavily skewed towards a domestic and international um, elite. There's another, I think, important thing here, which is is um, uh, something that's appeared in the work of, 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 of several um, several other people, um, which is that those things that are the catalyst for this period of growth, if we accept that this is simply a period of growth, have nothing to do with austerity, that right. the kind of the, the boosters of this version of the Celtic Tiger are very much the multinational sector, especially in areas of, um, of the high-tech sector, yeah. um, which really never had a crisis. Um, you know, they continued to export, they continued to employ people, uh, wage levels in that sector increased. So the austerity model, which of course was to hollow out the state, reduce public spending, reduce um, people's incomes so that we would become wage competitive, um, would suggest that it would be in those areas of the economy that uh, growth began. But actually, it was precisely in those areas of the economy where austerity never, never, never kind of led its uh, its icy grip. Um, mm-hmm, that mm-hmm. that growth has really growth has really emerged. So I think there's um, there's several there, there there's really several issues there um, that I think would 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 definitely need to kind of look at it a bit more closely. So maybe we can. Um for for maybe unfamiliar listeners, sort of travel back in time a little bit and just trace mm-hmm. um, the, the the sort of the narratives that emerged um, back in two thousand and eight, especially the sort of idea that because uh, I mean this is a major feature of the way the crisis was explained to the Irish people that it was a homegrown crisis that the mm-hmm. somehow the fifteen years of unprecedented growth that had preceded uh, the events of two thousand and eight were were actually somehow now suddenly revealed to be. Uh, maybe fraudulent or pre- built on a false premise, um, as Brian mm-hmm. Lenehan, the Minister of Finance, put it in, at the time. You know, we all partied, and somehow mm-hmm. this was like uh, a comeuppance or a hangover for mm-hmm. um, a, a wild hedonistic period of Irish consumerism, and the Irish had effectively bankrupted themselves because they mm-hmm. didn't know how to manage their finances. Can you can you maybe talk a little bit about the early years of the crisis and the strength or the priority of this cultural argument as a justification or legitimation for uh, the austerity policies that followed? Yeah, sure. It's it. I mean, I think for I mean, my disposition towards things is usually quite materialist, but it it is very interesting um, to see the, the the discourses, the narratives, the ways of of talking. And one of the things looking back, Nick, that's really astonishing is how mm. quickly people will change their story and how quickly they will, you know, quite, how quickly their, their their tracks will be covered. Mm-hmm. Um, because if you go back to two thousand five, six, seven, um, the, again, the you know that, 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 that I think it's an American term usually used in, in the United States that that, that boosterism, um, mm-hmm. that, that talking up of the Irish economy, and especially talking up you know if you look if you go back to the explanations of the Celtic Tiger boom, of course people acknowledge the importance of multinational capital, but many of the narratives of the Celtic Tiger boom were that this was a homegrown boom. Um, it was because of the genius of the Industrial Development Authority. It was because of the forward thinking of certain senior bureaucrats. It was because of the daring do of the Irish political class. But above all, it was because Irish people showed the appetite and the commitment and 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 the elan to 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 really get up out of their beds in the morning and um, do to do a decent day's work. So it was mm. a very self congratulatory, um, you know, the the Guy Debord term. It was a monologue of self praise essentially. But of course, 
a boom turned to bust with you know a real suddenness uh, and a different a different different narrative was spawn which i mean drew from obvious places it drew from kind of um uh catholic social teaching and a bit of you know uh, mixed with a bit of uh you know kind of uh, homespun psychoanalysis it was you know it was very much that you know basically we'd gone mad um, yeah. or lost our way or that we had fallen in some way and we needed to pay penance for that or we needed to go into rehab um and possibly both and that was essentially that was that was essentially the narrative as you say that we all partied um uh that we would now all needed to 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 have our comeuppance and we needed to take the hard medicine right. and it was, a, it was a very strong moral narrative that was always full of homes i mean full of holes um, not least because if you go back to 2006, 2007, the median wage in Ireland was uh, €28,000 um, per annum, which means that people are taking home less than um, less than €2,000 uh, a month in a country where certainly in the national capital, uh, a two-bedroom apartment would set you back the guts of that, uh, the majority of that, every month. So the idea that everybody was partying was always always problematic. Um, the thing that really, really drove the Celtic Tiger um, in its latter stages was, of course, cheap international capital, particularly from 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 uh, when the euro uh, came into play in 2002. And that was really the thing that added fuel to the mm -hmm. fire. Of, of, of the end of the Celtic Tiger because people who were earning very small amounts of money were able to borrow large amounts of money, hugely disproportionate to their incomes to buy houses that were hugely inflated and occasionally consumer durables and were encouraged to do so. Uh, yeah. The moment the bottom fell out of that market, they were chastised for their indulgence. I mean, the narrative switched overnight from you know the kind of I suppose the uh, what would you say the joie de vivre of the Irish people and our our love of the crack and all of yes. that stuff to um, we fell from grace and now we, we we're we're, we're going to have to pay penance. So there was that that, that narrative um, was 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 very very strong and um, it was very very deliberate and it implicit within it was always a certain kind of violence. Yes. Um, because basically, essentially, the political class, we're talking the children. That's essentially, you know, what, what happened. Um, mm -hmm. They were talking to, to, to their own citizens as though they were children. And, of course, these people uh, knew they were going to impose a particular order upon the citizenry. And, um, uh, and of course, there's a, a saying from my childhood that if you... Um, uh, you spur the rod, you, you spoil the child. And uh, I think had push ever really come to shove, I don't think the Irish political establishment would have spurred the rod. We were talked into position, but um, uh, when people slipped out of position, um, it was pretty obvious the state was willing to act in all sorts of repressive ways that corral us into this particular direction that was mm. conducive to the interests of a tiny, tiny number of people, um, remarkable number of people, um, a remarkably small number of people. So yeah, those those discourses were always there. They were they, they, they were they were very important, and um, they were repeated endlessly in the media, um, as though they were they, they were they were matters of facts rather matters of fact rather than matters of opinion. Um, this sort of leads to an int another interesting question that I think comes up from time to time, which is that. Um, you know, you sort of put your finger there on the idea of a, of a violence. And I think it's not hard to understand that this was a, a kind of a political project, because, of course, if the Irish people weren't going to accept the argument that this was a homespun crisis, even despite the fact that all of this was triggered by a global financial meltdown, there was, of course, a danger that they might start asking very dangerous questions about who was really to blame here and who would really put them in this situation. Uh, but we have, I think, sort of like contending... Uh, explanatory variables at this point, because on the one hand, it seems like you could refer to the particularity of the Irish economy and its elite-driven model of capitalist development as a contributing factor. But equally, you could refer to the role of the various European um, economic integration uh, mechanisms that have been put in place, uh, for example, under the single European market in 1993, a point which people like Yanis Varoufakis talk about a lot, you know, that there's, that the, these 
um, policies, forced, for example, deregulation of Ireland's financial sector. So, you know, in, in this sense, then, um, it bears some analysis, I think, you know, that we understand the Irish government had already implemented a significant proportion uh, of austerity uh, prior to the arrival of the so-called Troika in 2010. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so to what extent was this austerity implemented from a home base, so to speak, and to what extent was it imposed by Europe? Um, the extents are, are, are kind of hard to, to quantify, but certainly I think you're right, and I think it's an important point you make, Nick, because what is often for, forgotten in the retelling of the story of what happened with the arrival of the Troika towards the end of 2010, the emergency loans and the various um, uh, the various conditions that went with that uh, uh, with that uh, financial assistance, the emergency financial assistance, is that Ireland was already two years into an austerity program, yeah. um, and that uh, the Irish government had implemented that again with a with a real a real a real zest, a real vigour, um, they had an appetite for the job. And in a certain sense, um, uh, it was almost convenient, I think, for the Irish government when the Troika arrived because it was able to say, our hands are tied. Um, you know, there is no alternative to this. Um, uh, the Troika says it's going to be so, and it is uh, going right. to be so. But, 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 but certainly, um, uh, austerity predates uh, and long predates um the, uh, the 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 uh, arrival of of, of the troika, um, but of course, what's really important to remember as well is that when people talk about and this is again Far- Varoufakis's um, argument that one of the things that's most amazing about the bailout is that we always refer to it as a bailout, um, which is a my understanding of it a gift relationship, uh, something that is done for no instrumental reward and something yeah. that is of benefit to the to, to the recipient. And of course, neither of those conditions hold here um, because what the bailout was in reality was um, a huge financial transfer of resources um, out of the pockets of ordinary Irish people. Uh, the Troika arrives, allegedly gives us 85 billion, in reality gives us 32 and a half billion, right. which is a rather different sum. And in giving us those loans, immediately spurts out 35 billion into the French and German bank systems. Yeah. So basically <laughs> what they've done is they've shackled us with an historic level of debt, um, build out their own banking systems, and uh, to boot, um, then put us in a, in a position where they could, in a legally binding way, mm-hmm. enforce you know changes in many, many areas of our social policy, but not least how people work uh, and how people don't work, um, that would really change the balance between capital and labour, I think possibly irrevocably in this country. Um, so I think it's very, very important to see um, the, 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 the internal and external um, dynamics in, 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 in all of this. Um, the lack of regulation of the money that was being loaned to the Irish banks after the introduction of the euro was absolutely crucial. But also, of course, the inability, unwillingness, ideologically driven uh, unwillingness of the Irish state to regulate financial services. Um, uh, you know, this is this is not unique to Ireland, but of course, Ireland had never experienced anything like this. The amount of assets in the, in the Irish banking system at the height of the Celtic Tiger boom was something like five times greater than the size of the entire Irish economy. So you literally Can have you a say bank. Say that again, just for listeners, so you have a yeah. I, apparently, that? The, 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 the the assets are um, the the size of the Irish banking system in two thousand seven. Um, was about five times greater than the Irish economy, the Irish GDP that year, which means you had a banking system that was literally hugely, grotesquely greater than the size of the economy of right. which it was ostensibly a part. You know, mm-hmm. you know, you've got a house in which one room is bigger than the entire, the entire house. Essentially, um, it's uh, it's a it's a very 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 strange set of affairs. There was no regulation of this. Um, the lack of uh, what little regulation uh, existed um, was dismissed in one quarter as corporate McCarthyism. Remember the phrase being used. Yeah. So, I mean, th- this model is you know there's there's so many players in this, but there there you know there there was a certain how can we put this there there was, there was certainly a conveyor belt that uh, 
you know, the 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 one from the European financial uh, system uh, to Dublin and 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 back out again. Um, yeah, so I think it's very important, as you say, uh, to remember the various players in this, and to remember not least that um, uh, you know the Irish government showed no reluctance to impose the kind of measures that the Troika right. would impose upon us. Um, you know, in its three-year kind of uh, period of of of, of um, uh, essentially. Um, uh, ensuring that you know the single biggest uh, maldistribution of resources from 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 poor to rich in, in the history of the state, uh, whatever 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 the neighbouring island might have done to this island, um, <laughs> not sure there's any particular three period uh, three year period in which they um, extracted quite that level of wealth. Yeah. So let's move on to the piece in Critical Sociology, which you've published recently. Um, I know it's on. Uh, it's on the the web now. Is it is it out in physical print? Uh, it isn't out. No, I, it's uh, there's a bit of a backlog. It'll probably be. I, I would imagine next year sometime. Okay. You know. But, yeah. Well, I'll post a link uh, to the piece uh, in the show notes so listeners can get um, access to it. But um, let's talk about some of the ways in which you update the argument we've just been outlining, especially this "we all partied" aspect yeah. um, of how the Irish people were sort of interpolated into responding to the crisis a certain way. So if um, the we all partied moment marks, as you noted earlier on, a kind of a discursive shift from the more celebratory tones um, and self-congratulatory tones of the Celtic Tiger, you note and outline how by 2012 there was actually a second discursive shift where Ireland was suddenly elevated from this basket case Pig, mm. obviously the, 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 the peripheral countries mm. sometimes go under the moniker pigs. Um, now Ireland was suddenly going to be this poster child of European austerity. Now, I think, and I suppose you, you, you comment on this in the piece, that this would have come as a big surprise to anyone living in Ireland at the time. But you present a lot of data to show how and when this shift took place. And your big point mm. is that this was a necessary shift in strategy because at the time, the big concern in the in, in the in the European ferment was Greece. Um, yeah. Syriza had achieved something like a totemic status uh, among mm. much of the European left, and there was a, a risk that people were going to rally to some kind of common cause, perhaps band together, and in doing so, find the leverage. Uh, in their collective power to actually undermine the Eurozone project or at least democratize the way the crisis was being resolved. So how did they turn to Ireland and dress this country up as a nation that had suddenly taken its medicine? How true was it that Ireland had become this model European citizen? And uh, and, and how successful was the, 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 the transformation? Yeah, I, I, again, a, a few different things there. Um, I, I suppose the origin of that particular piece was trying to write a couple of other pieces that were about the arguments around um, uh, the success or otherwise of Ireland, the recovery narrative. Yeah. And 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 in the process of researching those and putting some drafts down of those, one of the things I noticed in the work of other people, and you know, you know, the the, the observation isn't an original observation, but perhaps we afforded it more attention than other people whose mm-hmm. purposes were, were to do other things. But, you know, uh, uh, people like Stephen Kinsella and Samuel Brazies and Aidan Regan and people like this have, um, you know, reading their work, one, one of the things that they noted they, 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 they is back in the spring of 2010, uh, Jean-Claude Trichet, then, then president of the European Central Bank, Bank yeah. um, makes a speech in the European Parliament in which um, he says that Greece has a role model and it's, the role model is Ireland. Right. Now, if... If you know, if you're familiar with the, as of course you are, if you're, if if anybody listening to this is familiar to where where Ireland was in the spring of 2010, I mean, basically the Irish economy was circling the plug hole, um, and within six or seven months, it would be a ward of the institutions of, fi- of finance capital. The troika would be essentially running uh, running the state. So the idea that Ireland would be a role model rather than a basket case. Um, which it had been called many, many times over previous months, marks the beginning of a shift. But it's also, I think it's suggestive of something 
that the first time this this metaphor is used publicly by a senior figure in the European power elite, yeah. uh, it's used in relation to Greece. And my kind of argument is, and we kind of map it out with some figures, but it's also, I think, you know, it, it's, it's one of those kind of feelings of, of having lived through the period as well, is that when Europe was talking about Ireland, it was talking about the other pigs at the same time. And it was talking about one particular pig in particular, which was Greece, which was, you know, the the Greek banks were particularly, particularly heavily indebted to the European banking system. The European banking system was heavily, heavily exposed in Greece. Um, Greece had a capacity to implode even greater than the other, other kind of peripheral and heavily indebted states. And my kind of sense of it is, you know, um, it was just, uh, I was remember Slavoj Zizek saying about the Iraq war, that when people talked about the Iraq war, they were always talking about something else. And I had just had that sense, you know, and we had that sense of when people were, 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 were talking about Ireland, they were really talking about Greece. And if you, if you look mm-hmm. at, if you follow the numbers, yeah. which you can do quite easily now with things like LexisNexis, if you, if you look at the stories around Ireland and particularly the compliments towards Ireland mm-hmm. that begin in the spring of 2010. Um, things like Ireland is role model, yeah. Ireland is poster boy, poster child, um, Ireland is the, the best model, uh, the best people in the class. These metaphors, they really begin in the spring of 2010. Um, they, you know, when when Greece is, is hurtling towards its first um its first bailout in the spring of 2010, they come back for the second Greek bailout in 2012, and they come back with a vengeance in the summer of 2015 when Greece has its third bailout. And it's, you know, it's a, it's, it, it's a, sounds, it'll probably sound not particularly subtle to say this, but, you know, they, they just echo one another. They're just, they're just obvious patterns. There's, there's, there's obvious connections between them. So Ireland became, uh, uh, the best, the, the 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 model pupil, the the best kid in the class, um, for all sorts of different reasons. One, the political elite was committed at an ideological level to austerity. Secondly, while there was always opposition to austerity, it was never until probably 2014, really, um, uh, when the water charges movement really, really kind right. of. It really breaks through and and takes everybody by surprise. Not at least many people on the left. Um, uh, you know, really, there was a, there was a lot more elbow room for the political elite to push things through. You know, famously, mm-hmm. Brandon said, you know, if if the measures that have been imposed on the Irish people had been imposed in in, in other European countries, there would be riots in in, in the street. Um, I think the other thing, which is, I suppose, where some of the work I've already mentioned earlier kind of um, develops these arguments, is that Ireland is the only one of the pigs that is both in recession and boom simultaneously. In other words, uh, while most of the country is in the biggest recession that it's ever ever experienced, um, uh, loses a bigger proportion of its GDP than any other developed society has ever done outside of wartime. At yeah. the same time, as part of its economy that is booming. And very importantly, Ireland has this remarkable bipolar economy. It has this quite important in terms of employment, multinational sector based in pharmaceuticals and uh, information and communications technology. But the thing that's really, really interesting about that is that 90% of all exports from Ireland come from multinational corporations. So during the period of the crisis, if you look at the broader, say, indigenous economy, it's just it's just completely imploded. But if you look right. at what's happening in Intel and Google and Amazon and Apple, they're taking on more people. Yeah, they're increasing their wages and the um, the exports that they're producing um, are at an all time high. So if you looked at that. You know, if 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 you're if you're if you're plotting a narrative, there's only one country of the pigs that's already in boom during the recession, ironically, um, and it's always Ireland that's the most likely to come out of uh, recession. So it's the it's the perfect it has the perfect profile, you know, um, yeah. you know, in terms of you know the narratives that are gonna uh, gonna surround it, and, and you know, it, it it is always the country that's that that is going to be chosen. 
And it's very interesting to watch what happens because the thing that I felt reading other people's work uh, and the thing that we went back and tried to kind of find in a numerical sense was why was it that people were talking about Ireland as a, as, as a, a country in recovery yeah. when it was in the throes of the biggest recession in the history of the country? And one of the things that we found was Ireland was more likely to be called a poster child, a role model, a best kid in the mm-hmm. class during recession than it has been in the period of what might be called recovery. So that kind of begs certain questions. Why were so many powerful people trying to, you know, tickle the belly of official Ireland when the economy had completely flatlined? And why are they why are they slightly less likely to do so now that it appears to be in recovery? And I think the obvious answer to that is in the political project of saving the European banking system and ensuring that the crisis would be a crisis that would be resolved in the interests of a very, very small number of people. Yeah. Can I jump in there just with a quick question? Because I'm fascinated by the hypothesis you're putting forward. Um, I'm really interested in, first of all, the idea that you're observing that the, you know, there was a second discursive shift because that's, I think, kind of in, in some ways a, um, uh, an interesting spin on the narrative history of the crisis um, that I certainly hadn't uh, given much credence to before. But sure. then on a more profound level, um, there is this idea that um, somehow this was a strategic necessity for the European elites and the Irish elites alike. Now, it bears thinking about because a lot of leftist intellectuals seem to be quite invested in the idea that the EU is unreformable. And of course, out of this kind of argument comes notions like, you know, Lexit in Britain or Grexit, um, that the only real solution uh, to austerity is to, you know, leave this fundamentally defective entity, uh, this, you know, at at its genetic root, it's, it's kind of corrupt, the European Union. You cite, and I think take seriously people like Jamie Galbraith, that the pigs always did actually have this trump card of mass default Mm -hmm. and that it was viable. What the um, evidence you're putting forward with this argument would seem to suggest that this strategy makes sense, this strategy of re-narrating Ireland only really makes sense if that threat was a real one. So Mm. what's your take on this? Do Do you think, I mean, obviously it's a very speculative question, but... Sure. Would was there actually a risk um, or, or a way in which the, the the peripheral nations could have rallied together and actually changed the fate of the eurozone crisis? Yeah, in, in, in principle, I think that I, I think there was. Mm. I think it was in the field of possibility. It was not the most likely outcome. Mm-hmm. Um, it would have required countries that historically have very little connection um, as a whole to one another um, uh, to have made a connection. It would have required countries to have faced down huge, huge, huge pressure. You know, the, 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 you know, uh, let's not forget that this, you know, there's, there's many narratives going on at the same time. The narrative of Ireland, the model pupil is going on at the same time as, Let's say um, Jean-Claude Trichet is 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 telling uh, the Irish finance minister uh, Michael Noonan that if they don't pay, repay creditors right. who have no legal right to be repaid, that quote unquote bombs will go off in Dublin. Um, you know there was there, there was always a big stick in this, and the big stick was always apparent. But yeah, I think in principle there was always a potential because. I mean, I, 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 I haven't the figures um, in, 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 in front of me, but if you sure. add up the level of debt owed by those peripheral countries to, let's face it, basically the French and, 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 your, and, and particularly the German banks. Um, if there had been a, a default, a mass default, um, you know, it, it's, it's, it's quite a trump card, you know, um, you know, it is it is quite a gun potentially to hold somebody else's head who's holding one to yours. Uh, and uh, I think it was unlikely. 
And I think one of yeah. the reasons it's unlikely was because, um, the, you know, I think in the case of Ireland, for example, the Irish political elite loves Europe. Um, I mean, really, in a, in, in a in, you know, in a, in a really, really quite a doe-eyed kind of devoted adolescent way, you know. I can understand. Uh, yeah, it really, really has that kind of, um, you know, uh, to be European is is. Um, is something which most Irish people never really talk about. Hmm. But I mean, the political elite love love nothing uh, better in Ireland than to be praised by Europe. Um, and I think, not least because Europe historically has been very important, structural funds in the 80s and 90s were very important as catalysts for the Celtic Tiger period. So there's, there, there, you know, there's a background to this. I think it was always going to be very difficult for those countries to bind together. Um, and I think all that Europe needed was one or more country to break away from the pack. Now, Spain and Portugal um, yeah. seem quite happy to not be part of any potential alliance. Right. Uh, but Ireland was certainly the country that um, negotiated this best in the sense that the Irish political elite clearly understood that if they played ball, um, if they imposed austerity, if they got the favour of Europe, that perhaps they would, the model, the model that's often used, Yanis Varoufakis uses it quite often, is the model prisoner. That um, in any prison regime, there is uh, a certain individual or individuals who go along with the austerity of the prison regime so that they might be spared it because of the prospect they might be spared the worst excesses of, 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 of prison life. And that's the road that Ireland took. Yeah. Um, it, you know, one of one of the narratives that came out of Dublin time and time again is we have the ear of Europe. We're talking to Europe. We will get some concessions for this. Um, the evidence for this is otherwise. Um, uh, you know, our debt, uh, our debt will never be written off. Um, yeah. uh, there might be some changes to the terms here and there, but it's it's never going to be written off. Um, and that was always the way. I mean, as early as 2011, uh, the Irish finance minister, Michael Noonan, uh, you know, who was really one of those people most, most dogmatic in the attempt to crucify Greece, essentially. Yeah. Um, he says to journalists, joking, we're going to get T-shirts made for, 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 for all the cabinet ministers. And um, they're just going to say, what was, what was the phrase? Ireland is not Greece. Mad. I mean, very, very simply, Ireland is not Greece. We're not like everybody else, you know. Um, uh, we're 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 going to play ball. We're going to be the model prisoner, and whatever you're going to do to brutalise them, if you would just brutalise us a bit less, we might actually come through this with our political careers intact. <laughs> so the irony, of course, there is that. I mean, as I understand it, there were Greek protesters out in the streets at the time with placards saying, you know, we are not Ireland. Yeah. Um, which begs the question, so uh, and maybe this uh, is a good time to, to, to raise this in the conversation. Uh, where was the Irish left in, in all of this? Um, if I go back to your introduction to your Ireland Under Austerity book, uh, you have in, uh, that, uh, that in, in, in those opening passages sort of a, a, a fairly detailed critique of where the Irish left was intellectually. Um, sure its involvement in the so-called cultural turn, its um, sort of commitment to a post-colonial model of appraising sure, sure. Ireland's role in world politics, Ireland's place in world politics. And um, you ultimately, I think, come to the conclusion that the Irish left uh, sort of reared itself on a vision of Ireland as essentially a passive victim of a corporate remodel. Now, of course, Ireland is a peripheral country and has had to eat a lot of unfavorable policies imposed on it basically because of the uneven power relationship with Europe. But um, you have a response to this. Sure. I, I, I think it's important to make a distinction here between, I suppose, the academic left and the act activist left, although those are not, of course, you know, uh, mutually exclusive categories. But I, I, I think one of the problems in the academy throughout the, the Celtic Tiger period was, I, I think it was very, very disabling for many, many people. I yeah. think the Celtic Tiger boom took people by surprise. Nobody ever thought this could happen. Um, you know, the initial kind of, I suppose, response, left response was um, 
uh, Dan Soharn's book Inside the Celtic Tiger, which is a very fine book in many respects, but it, it does rather kind of give a sense of a disbelief that what's what's happening is in fact happening in this remarkable period of, of, yeah. of boom. And I think a lot of the categories that people were using meant that many people thought that Ireland could never break the cycle of underdevelopment, relative underdevelopment. Uh, many people say, for example, in the most intellectually prestigious and influential kind of group of broad left academics would be operating out of the field day tradition. And they literally have nothing to say about the Celtic Tiger. Mm. Uh, they're too busy fighting fighting battles over, over over the dead generations and to be concerned with the fate of, you know, uh, people uh, dying in this particular this particular one. Uh, and um, I think more generally, Nick, my, my sense of it is, I mean, other people will tell you other things, and this is probably a minority view, but I think uh, there was among, say, even the liberal academy, a kind of sense of glee that um, the Celtic Tiger uh, in, in our little country, mm. you know, had finally made the desert bloom. And there was a certain kind of slightly understated nationalist pride over that, which prevented people really seeing, I think, maybe the, the dark side um, of the Celtic Tiger. Um, so I think th- th- there's many exceptions. That. I mean, Kieran Allen is, 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 is certainly the, the most important exception. Right. Um, to those who are blindsided by the Celtic Tiger, but um, but I think on the activist left, I mean, of course, as as you know yourself, Ireland's political system is a little unusual. Um, uh, the left has historically been very weak. Um, the kind of mainstream Social Democratic Party is a yeah. small and certainly in latter years quite kind of middle class, professional class dominated party. You have a Left Republican group Sinn Féin, which of course during this period has gone from strength to strength. And then to the left of Sinn Féin, you have a kind of constellation of smaller left groups, some of whom have representatives in in the national parliament. So um, certainly, let's say 15 years ago, it would have been inconceivable that there would be Trotskyists in the Irish parliament, but there yeah. are not several prominent figures in public life who are who are Trotskyists. Not necess- they don't necessarily... Um, I declare this uh, wide and loud, but that's 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 their background, and 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 many people would be aware of that. Yeah. So this period of crisis is is one in which the left grows, but um, much of that growth is in the Republican left, which for many people in the left, its leftist credentials are are you know are a matter uh, are a matter of dispute. Um, there's also, of course, the issue of the trade union movement. Um, one of my, my own concerns as somebody who was very active in, in, in my own trade union at the beginning of the crisis um, is that the trade union movement um, was beholden to a kind of corporatist model. It had been had its feet under the table for by the time the crash, it had its feet under the table for 20 years in pay deals. And its only model was for to get back to the negotiating table. And... In 2008-9-10, that model was dead, and the trade union movement didn't know what to do other than occasionally organise very, very large demonstrations yes. and um, and then tell people to go home. Now, uh, if you can bring 100,000 people out onto the streets of a society of 4 million people, um, you have a certain power. Um, uh, but the trade union movement didn't seem to know what to do with it. Uh, that power didn't... Mm-hmm. I didn't, certainly didn't want to do anything radical with it. And to yeah. be honest, my sense was that they were siphoning off the energy trying right. to persuade government to get back into talks, which government didn't need to do. And the outcome has been a trade union movement, which I think is is deeply, deeply um, compromised. Um, it has a grotesquely overpaid leadership um, that has basically, um, you know, uh, you know, essentially allowed again this historic transfer of wealth. Um, this the, the yeah. evidence for this is is all around us. Historic transfer of wealth from ordinary working people to a domestic and increasingly to an international elite. Without what what, what did we see? One national public sector strike mm-hmm. during the whole kind of period of the crisis. Um, uh, um, yeah, there, there, there was a lack of conviction, a lack of direction, um, 
uh, certainly from the trade union movement. Uh, in terms of wider social movements, um, the, 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 the kind of chiding that you mentioned of Greek protesters in Athens saying we're not Ireland, we will resist. Yes. I mean, that was never really entirely true. And people people quite often get quite annoyed when you mention this because it makes people Irish people seem passive. Mm-hmm. Um, but of course, there were always movements and there was points of resistance. And, yeah. and there was, you know, you know, you know, there were fantastic things going on. But in terms of a national movement, really, really, with the potential to change the political landscape, that really doesn't happen until the emergence of the movement against water charges um, imposed by the Troika. Um, but of course, it's very important to remember, uh, without wishing to under, un- undermine the importance of the water charges movement and, and, and how fantastic it was and is, um, uh, that by 2014, most of the austerity measures were already in place. And by 2014, most of the money that Ireland would give to um, the bondholders and the international financial system was already gone. Um, so its impact uh, was was certainly, its impact was very, very great, but its impact structurally, strategically was less than, say, for example, had it have taken root three, four years earlier. I think it really, right. really changed the political context. It's a very, it's a complicated picture and I'm sure for people who are not familiar with Ireland, yeah. that's an awful lot of information coming about an awful lot of different people. But um, I, I, ne- I neither want to kind of overstate the power of kind of mm-hmm. the left nationalists nor to overstate the supposed passivity of Irish people because neither of those are entirely true. But um, certainly we didn't see the scenes that we would have seen, say, for example, in, 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 in Spain and certainly not in Greece. Yeah. Um, that, that, that's certainly true. So, Colin, if we stay with this idea of the contrast um, that might be observed, and I know you said you don't want to make too much of it and understate the extent to which there was uh, resistance um, to austerity in Ireland, um, I think it is sort of worth checking in with this question of the, the, the difference um, between the way leftist movements in, say, the United States are in the UK now, um, with the emergence of Corbyn as a very serious player in the British Labour Party, um, mm. that as yet Ireland doesn't seem to have produced anything quite comparable to that mm. kind of phenomena. And if I'm hearing you right, you're suggesting that even with your little uh, commentary there on Irish unions, that there is a a sort of a fear of organized political strategy on the Irish left, perhaps. I don't know, want to put words in your mouth, but I'm thinking back to Ireland's uh, Occupy Dame Street movement, for example, uh, which prohibited political parties from participating in the encampment. And then, of course, during the 2016 election campaign, leftist political parties split on the question of whether or not they should allow Fianna Fáil to enter coalition with them, even as a, a junior partner. And Fianna Fáil, of course, for non-familiar listeners, being one of Ireland's sort of foundational uh, two political parties. And the result, of course, was that even though Fianna Fáil and the other foundational party, Fine Gael, pretty much got smashed, the two of them, in the in that election, we ended up with the unprecedented situation of actually those two parties entering into a kind of a coalition of sorts, a, a, a power-sharing arrangement in the doll. Mm-hmm. So I'm just curious, like, how do we explain this? Um, recent polling data suggests that those two parties are now kind of slowly starting to recover in the polls. They've still got a very long way to go before they're back to the commanding heights that they used to, um, you know, uh, dominate the Irish political scene, so, say, back in the 80s. Um, but where is the Irish left now today, in your understanding, on this question of electoral strategy? Um, is there any sort of light in the room? Um I think it depends what you mean by light. I, I, <laughs> I, I uh, you, you know, I, I, I think what's important here is, um, again, the configuration of the Irish left really is at the moment. If we, if we use it in its, in its broadest, broadest and non-sectarian kind of way, yeah. involves a tiny rump of the Irish Labour Party down to about seven seats in the doll. Sinn Féin that has a couple of dozen seats and a kind of a, a collection of individuals and small groups who make up uh, close to close to double figures in terms of of, of, of seats 
Um, so I think what really matters in terms of electoral strategy, what happens in the national parliament, really hinges on what happens to Sinn Féin. Yeah. Uh, and of course, there are, there's a lot of mood music now. Um, uh, Sinn Féin, you know, there are noises coming out of Sinn Féin now that it's perhaps rather less reticent about the idea of going into coalition, possibly with Fianna Fáil. Mm-hmm. Fianna Fáil seems to be saying rather, rather similar things. It's not beyond the realm of possibility that at some point in the future, those two parties might form a coalition with possibly... Um, some smaller groupings around them of independence. Um, but that is probably what's going to happen because, I mean, certainly the small left parties, it is very conceivable that the kind of Trotskyist left um, or those who were formerly in the Trotskyist left will remain in the national parliament. Mm. But a lot of that energy is associated with individuals with certain profiles yes. as opposed to parties. Uh, Sinn Féin clearly is, is um, a... a a huge force. Um, it has enormous resources. Yeah. Um, it has no shortage of um, younger people willing to go out and canvas and so on. And it has some, also some very capable people. Um, so it has a certain profile. But of course, you know, the history, the history of of uh, left involvement in government, whether it's the Labour Party or um uh former democratic left um is not necessarily a happy one or whether it's the green party is not necessarily a happy one you know those kingmaker parties tend to tend to uh, get their fingers burned very very badly so um that seems to be the most likely likely the the, the, the principal beneficiary of probably this crisis on the left is is clearly Sinn Féin yeah. that isn't to suggest that Sinn Féin always plays its cards particularly well um, they can be very, very politically astute and sometimes not. For example, on the issue of water charges, um, um, Sinn Féin were not supportive initially of the opposition to water charges. I, yes. I heard John Adams, party leader, president of Sinn Féin, on uh, the main um, national broadcaster's radio program one morning saying he would pay his charges and not appealing on people to not pay the water charges. And what happened, of course, was uh, in a by-election, a member of the um, Trotskyist left Socialist Party um, secured a seat ahead of what Sinn Féin understood to be one of their seats. Um, that gave them pause, pause for thought, and they became more sympathetic to the movement. So, it's mm-hmm. it's it's a, it, it's in flux, but I, I, I it's very difficult, Nick, certainly to see. First of all, the Labour Party in the short term making a comeback. Um, which uh, I think for those of us on the left, appalled by what the Labour Party did in, in, in government, yes. uh, would not be something that would, would, would invite a great deal of regret. Um, it's very hard to see the Trotskyist left really advancing beyond that, 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 that foothold, which has been important, many capable people, many, very, um, uh, many, many uh, really, really important figures and social movements and, and, and very important presences in the doll. But really, in terms of what might be very, very broadly considered to be the left, yeah. uh, um, what really matters is perhaps what Sinn Féin does, does, does next. At that, at that understanding of politics, yeah. outside of... I mean, one of the things that was very interesting and one of the things that people say very often about the water charges movement was how much of it was organic and sprang from communities yeah. and... And existed in in some places outside of the grasp of political parties, who quite often will um, will jump on bandwagons when once they're rolling. Um, but I mean, I think that uh, obviously the Socialist Party is very heavily involved with it because of the trial of those people who were arrested in Jobstown at a Jobstown at a um, at a protest against the government minister. Um, but it is a movement which does seem to have had a life beyond small organizations that are quite often involved in, um, in, in, in street protest and political protest in Ireland. I guess um, just a question, it seems like a, a germane and important one to wrap the interview up on. Um, leaving the sort of minutiae of the Irish left aside, um, the next big thing facing Ireland, the Irish economy and the Irish political system is is 
probably Brexit, right? So Brexit. I know um, European politicians like Eva Hofstad have, have been visiting Ireland recently talking about the surrealism of the prospect of a reinstated uh, border between Northern Ireland and the Republic. Sure. And um, I suppose, you know, he's got a point, right? That, that this is uh, looking at the recent British experience. It's, it's not obvious that there's a clear vision um, in the UK government for um, uh, what Brexit should mean or, or whether it, you know, even the, whether the British Labour Party has a, a coherent alternative, although I guess that seems to be developing. Um, on the other hand, uh, people like Yanis Varoufakis, who we've mentioned earlier on, are um, going around Europe um, putting forward this idea of a new political party, uh, DM25, arguing that we need a genuine uh, multinational European political constituency to emerge and demand accountability from Brussels. In mm -hmm. terms of the long-term um, prospects uh, and strategies on, off on offer to the Irish left, um, you know, which seems to be more likely to be the direction that we would follow? Is, 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 is the Irish left going to take up the idea of perhaps its own exit strategy given the dependence of the economy on the, the British economy that would seem to make sense or is there a, a future for the Irish left within Europe do you think um, big big questions uh, yeah. obviously Brexit the, the you know the UK leaving uh, the European Union has such impacts here because of uh, Northern Ireland because of you know the only shared land border of course being on this particular island Um uh, its impact on politics is, well, in, in, the, in the first in instance, is the hugely re-energized Sinn Féin north of the border. Um, it's been a huge shot in the arm to Sinn Féin. Um, the, the campaign uh, in Northern Ireland on the basis that um, most people in Northern Ireland voted to remain within the UK, um, as though, frankly, I mean, it's a UK-wide decision. Yeah. So um, uh, I'm not sure I would necessarily share that perspective, but... Um, that has really re-energized Sinn Féin um, north of the border. Uh, very close to a quarter of a million votes um, yeah. uh, in Northern Ireland now. Um, in the longer term, in terms of uh, what will happen in Brexit, the thing about the Irish left, you know, Dan Finn wrote a piece in our book, the Ireland Under Austerity book about the Irish left and, 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 and Europe, and has been one of a kind of a, a gradual thawing um, the Irish left, as the British left, were hugely opposed to entry into the European Union for reasons that, to be honest, you know, um, you know, I look quite reasonable in, in light of what happened subsequently. Um, yeah. uh, but I think our, Ireland's relationship with Europe is, and the Irish left's relationship with Europe is, is, is a little ambivalent because on one hand, we have seen pieces of legislation very important in terms of the EU um, enlargement and harmonisation programme imposed on Ireland. Um, uh, as you know, we were required to vote twice on the, um, uh, the Lisbon and Nice treaties uh, to ensure that we, 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 we endorsed them. Um, we were heavily, heavily bullied around the time of the, um, uh, the fiscal stability pact um, referendum to ensure that that would be um, a yes vote. And usually you will find the Irish left um, opposed to the European perspective on these things um, and very critical of the functioning of Europe, very critical of the potential, for example, for Ireland to be incorporated into versions of European militarism that might be in some way connected to NATO and so on. But there isn't the level of antagonism towards the, the principle of being part of Europe um, that you might find elsewhere. Um, I don't think the idea, for example, of, 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 of Ireland leaving the European Union, it's hard to see it really gathering steam in any meaningful way uh, in the immediate future. Yeah. Um, uh, despite, you know, all of these critiques from the left, um, of how Europe has conducted itself, uh, especially during the austerity period, um, the huge extraction of resources out of this country. Um, I don't think there is a wellspring of, there's an appetite really for that version of politics, you know, the kind of 
um, an Irish version of, of, of the UK's um, Brexit, not least because Sinn Féin, that was originally very opposed to Europe, is now very, very, very much not opposed um, hmm. to Europe. It's a much more sympathetic disposition uh, towards the European project. Um, so it's 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 this certainly wouldn't be something I could speak speak about with any great expertise. I would have to admit, but it's hard to imagine that uh, it's hard to imagine that that kind of politics would ever gain legs in terms of the Varoufakis uh, project. Um, good luck. I, I share his critique, yeah. but it's hard to imagine how those institutions will be ever be democratized. Um, and I think the experience of Ireland during this crisis is 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 really bears testimony to the logic of 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 a certain logic of the European Union, which has been hugely you know has has bestowed great riches on on Ireland at times of great need in the 1980s and the 1990s, um, but recently really really pilloried the society, really pummeled the society. Um, and I think the thing, maybe one of the things, you know, you know, I know we're going to wrap up soon, Nick, but like, I mean, one of the things I think has become apparent over the last, say, decade was for those of us on the left who quite often felt that how we talked about things was anachronistic, or we were told it was anachronistic. It's very hard now not to say to people, look at how your state behaved. Look how the European super state um, uh, behaved. And what's the common thread? And the common thread is this. Everything was done to protect the interests, protect the riches of those people who have too many riches already. At every turn, that's the thread that runs through everything. Whether it's the guaranteeing the um, creditors' investments in the Irish banking system, whether it's the creation of an institution to um, protect um, the, uh, the 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 developers who had gone uh, who had gone gone bust, um, whether it was you know you creating Trojan horses um, to essentially invade economies and extract their wealth and to call those Trojan horses bailouts. Um, look what's happened in Ireland. In the last five years, the wealth of the wealthiest, the estimated wealth of the wealthiest 300 people in this society has grown by 50,000 million. Wow. You know, um, in a society where, according to research in National University of Ireland, Galway, one in five children go to school or go to bed hungry every day. One of the wealthiest countries in the world, and we have record homelessness, Record number of pensioners on trolleys waiting to be treated, and we have children going to bed and going to school um, hungry. Now, if you want to understand how the world works, how the European Union works, when push comes to shove, um, how the Irish state works when push comes to shove, um, after all that flattery, you know, after all, being told that we made the desert bloom, uh, it's amazing how quickly that changed. And it's, it's amazing how big capital and the people who act in its name, it's quickly, it's amazing how quickly they bur- they, they, they bur- their teeth. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, yeah, I think, I, th- I, 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 I think the scales fell from a lot of people's eyes during that period. Whether, you know, um, God, I was very tempted to use the uh, <laughs> the blue pill, red pill metaphor here, but obviously its political connotations are are are, are very very dodgy. But whether people <laughs> go back to their old way of thinking, yes, or whether they 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 they, they want to see the matrix is of course a, a a matter of 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 some dispute. But um, people people saw something. They 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 saw the 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 the, the nature of the system. Uh, at its most basic, at its most fundamental, mm-hmm. uh, operating in their daily lives, and um, and it terrified people. Yeah, um, it, it 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 harrowed people. It cowed people. Mm-hmm. Uh, animated people. It did a lot of different things, but mm-hmm. um, uh, it's been a remarkable. It's been a really as awful as it's been. It's been a fascinating time to be living in this part of the world. But um, 
I, I, I would have been quite happy not to have been so fascinated by it. <laughs> Colin, I would love to um, get you back on the show maybe next year sometime to update again um, sure. on where we are uh, as things develop here. Uh, it's been a great pleasure having you on talking about your, your article again for listeners. I'll uh, post a link to the piece uh, in the show notes and you can go and check it out. Uh, again, it's uh, uh, co-authored with Angela Nagel and Francisco Arcaros Fernandez. And uh, the name of the article is Austerity's Model Pupil, the Ideological Uses of Ireland During the Eurozone Crisis. Colin Coulter, thanks very much for joining us. Thanks very much, Nick.